Decorating Pages is a podcast dedicated to taking you behind the scenes of the designs of your favorite TV shows and films. Each episode, I'll be sharing design stories from some of Hollywood's most famous sets, interviews from set decorators, production designers, directors, and actors about creating the look of TV and film, about their design inspirations, and stories that take sets from page to screen. Hello, and welcome to Decorating Pages. I am your long-lost host, Kim Wanup. I know. I said it would be a week or two, and it's been like three months. I'm sorry. I am. I... I have no excuse. Oh, I do. I have plenty of excuses that we all come up with, like family and work and not putting your passion first. We all know how that is in this business, right? Um, but seriously... The end of American Crime Story was completely intense. Um, as I think I said on the last episode, 73 sets in the last um, episode. I hope you got an opportunity to watch it. I am going to do an episode of all of the set decoration. And um, yeah, <laughs> there was a lot. And I am super grateful to whoever made the decision to air hundred or an hour and 20 minute episodes and the finale was uh 143 episodes so we did full-length movies basically every week and I am so proud of what aired and I cried every episode (laughs) that aired because of how hard it was and how proud I was it was a twofer um but I hope you got to see it to see what I'm constantly talking about for the last year and a half um, I thought it was beautifully shot by uh, cinematographer uh, Simon Dennis. So, yeah. But, unfortunately, um, there have been some health issues in my family, and I've had to travel back east, and everyone's doing fine, but it was a lot. And then I started a new show, Rutherford Falls, which airs on Peacock uh, with Ed Helms. And so I started that work, and you know who to really blame for not having me? are these twins. They don't go to bed. They don't, they don't go to bed till like eight o'clock at night and then they don't fall asleep till like 9.30. So as you will hear in this episode with director Craig Sisk, um, you'll hear them in the background at 8.15 to 9.15 at night. They're not too loud though. It'll be fine. You'll be fine with it. So I am sorry for the hiatus. I missed a lot. I was going to talk about the Emmys. Um, um, you know, congratulations to Sarah uh, for her win on Mayor of Easttown. If you caught our last episode that I uh, put up, uh, she won for uh, Best Production Design of One Hour for Mayor of Easttown. So if you haven't caught that episode, listen to her talk about the show because it was phenomenally done and I'm a huge fan of, of that. Um, I was off and I didn't get to talk about the IATSE vote where all of Hollywood almost went on strike, Um, but I'm not going to get political and I'm not going to talk about it. It's probably good that I wasn't podcasting at the time because I might have lost a few of you and I might have gained a few of you. Um, I voted no. There's my stance. Do what you want with that. I just, uh, I think it was a bad deal. But oh well, next time, hopefully, we uh, 
we get to have lunch. <laughs> they wanted to take away lunches. I don't know. And I it doesn't really affect me. But the fact that they just would rather pay people to not eat or pay people. And I know that some people depend on those meal penalties and I get it. But I just think the the whole essence of it is just wrong. But hey, we'll get them next time, tiger. <laughs> um, I hope you've been well through the fall and approaching this holiday season. Surprise! I'm going to have two episodes and maybe a third if you're lucky uh, before the end of the year if I can get <laughs> get it together. But yeah, um, sorry for the hiatus, but uh, I got a good one for you tonight. I got a good one. So what's one I've been watching in all this time? I'll tell you what I've been watching. The Sopranos. We're still not done. My husband and I get like two episodes a week because we're basically ships passing in the night. We barely see each other because he works a lot of nights. Um, I work a lot of days. And so, but when we do watch TV lately, we're watching The Sopranos. We're on season 6B, episode 4. So I'm really almost done. Um, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Uh, to rewatch The Sopranos is a gift. I'm telling you right now, if you watched it the first time, it's a gift. Watch it again. If you've never watched it, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. It's like, here's the thing. I didn't watch Breaking Bad. I know. But I'm never going to watch Breaking Bad because I know it's not as good as the, the Sopranos and I know it's not as good as The Wire. And I already know the ending. So... I, I understand it's great acting and the story and all that. I'm sure it's a really great show. I'm not watching it. I don't know why. I'm an asshole. I'm not doing it. But if you haven't watched The Sopranos, there's really something wrong with you. <laughs> okay. It's phenomenal. The story arc of these characters over the seasons, which I think was like 10, 11 years, but they only had six seasons. It's amazing. It's amazing. The production sign's amazing. Uh, I, you know, we've had him. Uh, it's great. It's great. Bob Shaw. It's just, it's great. It's, it's such a time capsule of the 90s, late 90s. It's great. Um, and all I keep thinking is poor James Gandolfini is not here. And it saddens me so much that he's not around. Um, well, what I'm also what I also watched was the Many Saints of Newark, production designer Bob Shaw, and set decoration by Regina Graves. Phenomenally done. Uh, I mean, the period, all the details of the Soprano family home. It's just it's beautifully done. Is it what I wanted to see as a prequel? No, not really. Um, and then, I mean, I'm really diving deep into Sopranos here, but there was just an episode with um, the creator and he told the ending, which is a, you know, the ending was such a huge, you know, discussion of what really happened when the screen went blank and then he just told us what happened when the screen went blank and I don't it's really a bummer that I know I, I just liked I hated it in the beginning I hated the ending and then I grew to love it 
And now he told us what happened. And now I'm pissed, David Chase. I'm pissed. So there's that. <laughs> but The Sopranos, you should watch it. Anyway, Only Murders in the Building was phenomenal. Production designed by Kurt Beach and set decoration by Rich Murray. I thought it was super funny. Not a super complex, um, you know, storyline. It was fun and it's really well done in this apartment building. I really liked it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to season two, hopefully. White Lotus, I thought was fantastic. You gotta watch that. Production designed by Laura Fox and set decoration by Jennifer Lucart. Fantastic. I wish I worked on that show. I wish I could work in Hawaii like that. Ugh, so good. So well done. Nine Perfect Strangers, which is on Hulu, set decoration by Glenn Johnson. It was a little weird. I don't know if I'd, I don't know if I'd watch season two, but I, I liked it, but I didn't like love it. It's real. it's like this, they go into this, almost like this cult thing and they're in this beautifully designed house and yeah. Uh, I watched Midnight Mass because I've been on a, I was on a plane at the time, uh, back and forth, and um, that was a good eight hours of like mindless television. Production designed by Steve Arnold. I, I, it's set on this like island up in I think New England, and the whole town is on one island. So to me, that's very interesting that the design of it is uh, was it really on this one island? Like, of course not. It's movie magic, but. Uh, I thought the design was interesting uh, because of this town. Um, oh, and set decoration by Mark Lane. I thought that, I mean, it's like a light horror story, but there's some good twists. It's not, um, it's not predictable-ish, but I thought it was decent. Pen 15, I don't know where I've been. Who told me not to watch this? It's hysterical. Pen 15 on Hulu, production designed by Grace Alley and set decoration by Alley Rumfeld. Um, it's hysterical. And it's, it's like, I believe, two grown women playing themselves, but in like late 90s, early 2000, growing up as teenage girls. It's hysterical. The references are like dead on. And it's very relatable and completely over the top. But I just thought it was really good. Oh, I'm sorry. And it's over. And I caught it at the end. But super good. <laughs> you know what else? I mean, I could just keep going on and on. I, I, I watched Sister Wives. We're not going to talk about that. Secession just ended. Production designer Stephen Carter and decorator Joey Detata Jr. Wow. Wow, Secession. That ending this week. Wow. I'm not going to give anything away. I'm going to say maybe one of the best scenes on all of HBO shows was a dick pic this season in Secession, and it was hysterical. So I hope you're watching that. And it's beautifully shot and beautifully done, and I can't imagine what their budget is, but it's worth it. I love it. Squid Game. Everybody watch Squid Game. It's kind of fucked up, but it was really good. Um, Tiger King. I forced myself to watch those extra four episodes. I shouldn't have done it. I love Bad Mouth. Anybody watching Bad Mouth? It's just funny. It's a cartoon on Netflix. It's really funny. And of course, Curb Your Enthusiasm's on. And we're all watching that, right? <laughs> yeah. 
On this episode, I speak with director-producer Craig Zisk, who, as I was speaking with him, has 96 credits as directing. I mean, you've seen his work. It's amazing. He has the ability to jump back from comedy to drama with shows like Brooklyn Bridge and NYPD Blue, and then jump on over to The Larry Sanders Show and Weeds. And then just, you know, dabble in Wu-Tang, an American saga, which is on. I mean, that's a talent in itself. And then to top it off, he's a super nice guy. Um, He has been nominated 14 times um, for various awards, including Emmys for The Looming Tower, Weeds, The Larry Sanders Show, Brooklyn Bridge. They won the Golden Globe for Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, his career in this, I think he said 30-year span, which is crazy to me, is phenomenal. Super talented, super nice. I met him as a young lad, which he didn't remember, which is fine because I was a PA, on American Dreams, and then as a decorator on Parks and Rec, and I mean, he's done Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He just jumps back and forth. You have seen... The amazing work that he does and he was nice enough to give me the next two hours which I've cut into two episodes for you and talk so candidly about his experience of going to USC but not film school but working on family ties as a PA and that was kind of his film school and really being into the industry and learning as he goes which is I think the only way you can do it. But, look, I'm just going to throw out a couple of shows that he's done, and you're going to be like, what? He did, as I said, Brooklyn Bridge, The Single Guy, um, Popular. He did NYPD Blue, Felicity, Smallville, Watching Ellie, American Dreams, Monk, Without a Trace, Alias, Scrubs. LAX, Las Vegas, My Name is Earl, The Office, Weeds, Nip Tuck, United States of Terror, which I didn't even get to talk to him about, damn it, Shameless, American Horror Story, Smash, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Rec, Halt and Catch Fire, Preacher, This Is Us, Santa Clarita Diet, Veep, Looming Tower, Future Man, Manifest, Elementary, New Amsterdam, Brave New World, Wu-Tang Clan, An American Saga, and American Rust. And I just worked with him on Rutherford Falls. So I hope you learned from this. I did. Super generous to give, uh, give me this time. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. that I was a PA on American Dreams. <laughs> no way. Were yeah. you really? I was an art department PA and and um, Phil Tolan was the production yeah. designer. Yeah. Who's genius. Who's Yeah, he's great. The talent is unbelievable from him. So I remember you from then. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. That's hilarious. And my brother directed. Yeah, and your brother too. I loved that show. I loved working on it. 
I thought it was like, I mean, I would have to say like, it was just a great, one of my first Hollywood experiences to be on something that was period. That was great. Do you prefer doing period at all when you direct? Um, I've done a lot of period and I do like doing period. I think it's a challenge, especially doing period that I don't know or I didn't live through or is in the future. It's just an added challenge. I always like to challenge myself and find projects that are, uh, you know, out of, out of my comfort zone. And, and that tends to be the case with a lot of those period shows. I mean, the first show I ever directed was a period show set in the fifties. Right. Brooklyn bridge. Brooklyn bridge. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I've worked all the way into the future on a show, uh, a couple of years ago that I did, um, called brave new world. It's on Peacock. Yes. Just all future. And we created a whole world. It was amazing. It was great. There's no prop. There's no, set dressing there's nothing that should appear as if it exists today so and i think that was like 150 years in the future is that harder to direct because or easier because you don't have rules you don't have to there's no research telling you you're wrong in a sense I guess. Uh, yes the future you is easier the past the first show that i was talking about brooklyn bridge that i directed uh was an autobiography of the guy who created it, Gary Goldberg, and who uh, was a real mentor for me, um, and obviously giving my giving my first chance to direct <laughs> meant a lot to me. Uh, but he was very specific about what he remembered from Brooklyn in the 1950s. So he would, if, we, if there was a, man, a milkman coming in with bottles, he would say, no, we didn't have round bottles. We had square bottles. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's not what my block looked like. And, and he was so specific, but it was a great lesson in being specific and making choices that mattered. So I learned so much about not only 1950s Brooklyn, I was one of the producers of the show as well. So I had to do a lot of research, but just about really making every choice matter. And that was really acclaimed. Like that show was really acclaimed. I I don't, I did not watch that, but I remember it being on and being like nominated and like, you know, the performances were good and everything. So, I mean, it all comes through on the screen when, if that passion is there of like these details that you might think are so minor, just make such a difference in storytelling. I think so. It was, uh, we did get a lot of recognition. We won the Golden Globe the first year uh of the series and i remember we were thought we had no chance of winning gary goldberg had a prior commitment um a family commitment so he couldn't go to the ceremony and marion ross who was the lead was nominated as well and and so sam weissman who was the producer director on the show and i went with marion and we were literally sitting next to the mixing board in the (laughs) back of the room knowing that that's probably where we should be because we don't have a chance to win this thing. And they announced it and we just all stared at each other. Like, are they actually announcing our show? And, and, you know, it's, it was a real surprise for everybody and and a great joy, but uh, we went on to be nominated for some Emmys as well. So it was a short run. There are only 
he really did his season and a half so it was it was probably like 35 episodes 38 episodes or something like that so that was in the days of 22 episode yeah uh, orders so yeah so why I was, do you I directed wh- 32 i remember that and then we got canceled why oh well being, not because of my work no well no being canceled uh especially i think in the 90s was very like uh you don't make your numbers we're done yeah, for Next. sure. I mean, we had, I think, four or five different time slots. The initial time slot we had was on a Friday night, and the show was about three generations of a Jewish family growing up in Brooklyn in the 1950s. And we were like, Friday night's Friday- probably not the yeah. show. Probably the worst night and, you could be on. <laughs> yeah, so then they moved us to Saturday, and then they tried us on a Tuesday, and it never quite found its audience. I think it was... Uh, these were the early days of single camera, half hour comedy dramas. Right. And it just, uh, you know, I think it resonated with a lot of people who knew that world, but outside of that world, it was a little harder to attract an audience. Um, so out the gate, you're winning Golden Globes and, and you're being nominated, but I, but that's actually not your first gate. <laughs> I, if we back up a little bit. <laughs> so you went, did you go to film school? I did not go to film school. I went to USC. Right. And my intention was to go to film school. And I have a brother who's also a director and a producer who did go to film school, who's uh, seven years older than I am. And you just took uh, his notes. At that time. <laughs> You're like, just give me your notes. And that, just exactly. give me your notes. We'll save the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, can, I don't have to go to film school. I've got you. Yeah. And at the time, the production classes were just your junior and senior year. So I was getting ready to reapply. Um, and he was already working. He was, I think, an assistant, maybe an associate producer at that time. And he said, look, no matter what you do in film school, you're going to go start off and work as a PA. Just go find a job and yeah. go to work. So I actually worked for Gary Goldberg, the person who created Brooklyn Bridge. He had a little show called Family Ties that he created. Never heard of it. Yeah, don't know much about that one. I don't know what happened to that show or anybody in that cast. But uh, so I was a production assistant on that while I was still in school. So I spent, I went to uh, the first class of the morning that I could sign up for. Then I went to work and worked most of the day. And then in the evening, I would do classes. So wow. I did that for, yes, I did that for a year. Wow. And uh, that was my first experience uh, in a paying job in the business as a PA. And then um, just decided based on what I was learning there, what my brother was telling me, which was just go to work. So I was an English yeah. major and took as many film criticism classes as I could take and film writing classes just to kind of be in the film school a little bit, but uh, but I was not an official member of the uh, film school. At I think you beat the system. <laughs> I, think, I I think you did it right. <laughs> yeah, I I mean I'm glad I had the English major uh, as as a, a, a kind of baseline education. And, yeah. But you know that's all about storytelling, and that's kind of what we all do. We all try to tell stories and one way to learn is through filming and some another way is, is through literature. And I, I feel like I had a 
deep base of, of how to tell good stories from reading all this great literature in, in college. So I think it, it served me well. I, I definitely, I mean, and I, the, the passion you had to go to school and then go PA for probably 10, 12 hours. I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to it do. A lot. I mean, fortunately it was a sitcom schedule, so it was not the schedule that oh you and I are used to on the shows that we worked on together, but, but still, yeah, but it, was still. Of, it was a lot of work and Friday nights, uh, you know, or the shoot nights. And so that was always a lot of fun because I was so new to the business, but to be around, you know, people like Michael J. Fox and Gary Goldberg and this incredible writing team. And it was a real lesson on how a show is made, but it was also at that time a pretty big hit by the time I started working on it. So just to kind of see the power of, of, you know, 35, 40 million people a week would watch that show. Yeah. You know, now we're lucky if a million people watch a show. And it's a hit. It's a gigantic (laughs) hit. You know, just to see Michael Fox, who at the time, I think had shot the first Back to the Future. Um, He was giant star, but could not have been nicer and still passionate about doing family ties, even though he had moved on to this gigantic career as his side job in between seasons. Oh, it was it was a, just a great environment to be around to kind of get me off and running. Wow. I, I can't. And then in your journey there, did you see, because he, did he direct him or was it, was he the director of family ties? So how, did you, were you inspired by the directing there? Uh, well, uh, Gary Goldberg was the writer. Sam Weissman was the in-house director, director, producer, but there were many directors that came through there. And uh, yeah, I was definitely inspired. I, I knew early on when I was a kid that I wanted to be a director and I directed all my school plays with the drama teacher who also oh directed God. them. And I just was always attracted to that side of things. And um but yeah, I was on set quite a bit. I was a PA that was around the set a lot. So I really was able to watch Sam work. Sam was another mentor for me who also ended up being on Brooklyn Bridge. So that team of Gary and Sam Weissman and myself and Brad Hall um, is another great showrunner, writer, producer, so and director. Yeah. Um, we all kind of did Brooklyn Bridge together. And so I really learned so much from them. and. And not only how to make a great show, but how to be a decent human being and and uh, and work in this business. So they that, were uh, they were all great mentors to me. That's, I mean, to start out and not be exposed to um, the like raw the rough side of it. As like, I mean, I know I experienced like yelling and like just people flipping out. Like that must have been nice to have just nice people. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, this was all, at least the family ties part of things. I was in college. Yeah. When I left college and started working more as a career, you know, I, I definitely worked for people who, who uh, you know, were maybe not as nice as Gary. I've always had great experiences. I was very yeah. lucky. All of the people I worked for, I worked for John Outnet and Jordan Kerner right when I got out of school. I started as their assistant and then worked my way up into associate producing and post-production they were all just 
I was lucky. I worked with really, really smart people who knew how to, you know, do great work. Yeah. So I started, we did mostly features and movies of the week. They didn't do a lot of series work at that time. And, and I just was exposed to a lot early on and given a lot of opportunity and responsibility. And, uh, you know, it, it paid off down the road, but I, I was lucky to have people who really wanted me to learn and gave me the opportunity to learn, which, you know, is That's important. And I really feel like they, you know, they were happy to send me off to go run all their errands and do all the regular PA work, but they saw that I was fine doing that and gave me other opportunities to, to learn actual filmmaking. So that's awesome. I mean, that's the best school you could have. That's for the, sure. Yeah. That's absolutely the best like training that you could have is hands-on and people who want to teach you things. And I think that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest secrets in our industry is even if you, you're not like a mentor or whatever, we, I mean, any PAs or coordinators or any like buyers I've had who want to be decorators, you have to share information. You have to tell them how it really is and you have to like share it because I, I didn't go to film school and I doubt I would have learned anything about how to really decorate and really budget and anything in film school. I don't know. That's just me. <laughs> like... No, I, I agree. I mean, I, it's, it's such a hands-on business. I think things have changed slightly for film school and directing um, because the equipment mm. is yeah. the same. So at least technically you can cut on an Avid and you can shoot on an Alexa camera. And, and so the elements are the same. The experience isn't because you're not working on multi-million dollar shows. But when I was at the age of going to film school, I mean, the the big movie you made at USC in film school was a 16 millimeter movie. And most of the other movies you made in film school were eight millimeter. You cut on a box cutter. I mean, that was what right. film school was back then. And so you learn the art of directing, but you kind of learned um, something that may not have applied to actually directing a television show or a feature film. So, so I do think, kind of having mentors who wanted to teach. I got lucky. I mean, I think there's obviously we know there's so much luck in this business and yeah. I was lucky to work for the people that I worked for who not only were great craftsmen on their own right, but they were willing to share that information with me. And then you were with like Botchko and Milch and like, I mean, you. <laughs> You, you really, you, you're yeah. really, I Which mean. was not there when I was there, but yeah. Oh, I thought Botchko did Cop Rocks. Cop Rock was. Cop Rock, sorry. Cop Rock was Botchko, but not Milch. Oh. Uh, Milch was. Um, but Milch. Was, was, started on it. Right. Blue. But was Milch on NYPD D Blue when you directed? When I directed, he was no longer there. I directed, I think, season nine or ten. It was very late in the run. I watched every episode. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I loved working on it. Obviously, I was a huge fan of the show, but it was very funny. By the time they got to season nine or ten, whichever one I directed, they 
basically told you where you could put the camera. <laughs> right, right. The episodes. There was like, okay, you can, if we're in the interrogation room, we don't want you putting the camera over the table. We don't want you to be inventive. We put the camera here. We put the camera because here. Because you got that one, video. you got that one shake move and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that was Brian Reynolds, the director of photography. I know, Brian, yeah. The, yeah, you know, Brian, American Brian was the director of photography on American Dreams. Yeah. So he was the one who actually created the look of, of NYPD Blue. So, um, but uh, but it was also just interesting to direct, you know, the the actors on that yeah. show because they were just so school. They'd done 200 episodes of the show. What was I going to say, you know, to the, to is the that, is, of that show? But, so you kind of directed the yeah, yeah. Is that the hardest thing when you when you come into directing, uh, like, you know, seasoned shows? Is what am I, what am I really what am I doing? And and I would say probably you're on the NYPD Blue. You were so stifled with you're not allowed to do this and this. <laughs> That's yeah, gotta be really hard. Yeah, they knew what worked for them. I mean, I didn't actually have a problem with it because I felt like, as I do on every show, the hardest part about being a guest director. Uh, which is when you just come in and you direct one episode of a show or a couple of episodes is to put your stamp on their version of things because you're, there's a very fine line between putting your stamp on what they've done and crossing that line and putting too much of you into their show that now the show is not recognizable. Obviously they want the audience to think that one person directs, every episode because they want them to all for the most part be consistent um so kind of coming into it and and being able to play within the box that they've created yeah. and kind of maybe pushing the edges of the box is kind of the the area where a guest director can live and and still hope that everybody watches it and thinks it feels like every other episode but there are things in there that you brought to it and some of it is directing the actors and yeah you know, trying to you know bring something new to a character who has been doing it for so long and you know there aren't a lot of things you're gonna change in terms of their personality but maybe there's a little something you can do to to help but but then you also have the guest actors and every script is unique and you have different challenges within the the stories to to kind of work through i i i think it's incredibly hard being on shows like, like, uh, like say parks for a long time and then seeing like directors come in and out and you're like, for me, there's always this like, oh, what do you want? You want the chair over here? Like, right. there's, there's always like a, what? The chair's never over there. Really? And then it's like, well, okay. And, and especially on like a parks or, Brooklyn or whatever you're any comedy that you're doing there's always comedy and ensuing in some sense and it's all about you know that so there's always like you always have to give up a little to for the for the comedy of it if you can but I do always think it's funny when it's like I'm gonna put that chair back when you're gone like I know. it's gonna now they're only looking at the chair yeah. watching what's happening and yeah I mean that's something you know, I, yeah, I probably would move the chair or if I was going to move the chair, I, you know, 
But there's Come, a reason. Like, it's not... sure, and say, hey, Mike, can yeah, I no. Are you going to get the poster? Are you going to hate that and think, oh, I'm never having this director back because they moved the chairs around? But no, I mean, that's a, obviously a small example, but that does happen. I mean, as a producer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, I want to know where a director who comes in is going to want to stray from kind of the, the rule book that's set up for that particular show. And which is great. I, I mean, I love when somebody wants to do that, as long as we know beforehand that, you know, this is what I'm thinking. And most of the time we're like, great, that sounds great. Let's try that. But there are times when, you know, it strays too far and then it doesn't feel like the show anymore. And then, and then that's not great for an audience who's expecting the same thing every, th- every week. They want it to be the same. Now you do go back and forth in your career from dramas to comedies and dramas and comedies like do you prefer one or do you do you think did did you purposely think i'm not going to get cornered in the dramas like i gotta branch out and do comedies like was that was that like a choice for you or is it you i'd rather do comedies but i keep getting hired for these dramas like (laughs) a little of both it was definitely a choice i wanted to not be a comedy director or not be a drama director because most people are labeled one or the other. Um, Early in my career, I tended to be hired. I kind of started directing in a kind of a weird time. There weren't a lot of dramas that had comedy in them and there weren't a lot of comedies that had drama in them. And it just kind of the stars aligned that that's when I started directing and so I would get hired on these single camera comedies. They weren't sitcoms that, you know, shot in front of an audience. It was just It was like Sports Night. I feel like Sports Night was like one yeah. of the first like dramedies that like ABC had and then it was like then it started to become cool and like and it was a half hour and you got your your yeah. story in there but you laughed and it that I think that's why that show right. did so well. Yeah, no, completely agree. And so I, that was around the time I was starting to do a lot more freelance directing. And so these comedies would hire me because I had some drama background. They go, oh, you know, it's mostly a comedy, but we also want somebody who can understand the drama in these scenes and tell that story and not just tell jokes. Right. And then similarly in a lot of the hour dramas I was directing had a lot of comedy in them. Um, Ryan Murphy's first show was a show called Popular. Mm-hmm. that was on the WB way back when. It's probably mid to late 90s, I would guess, somewhere around there. And so I directed quite a few of those. And it was a comedy, but it was an hour, but it also had drama. And it told really powerful stories, but it told some in a funny way. But then there were some really powerful uh, storylines. and. And so I get hired on those shows for, well, it's a drama, but it's got a lot of comedy. So let's find someone who has a comedy background. And, and so by doing that early in my career, I never quite got labeled as a comedy director or a drama director. And then I've just kind of been able to build off of that and, and been lucky. I, I, it's genius, really, by. because it probably keeps you from getting bored, too. It does, for sure. And I'm always happy to jump between genres as well and do something like I mentioned, Brave New World, that takes place in the future. And then, or Smash. Yeah, or Smash. Or, you know, I I do 
when given the opportunity to pick and choose, try to pick and choose shows that are different so that I am not doing the same thing. And most of my producing experience, uh, I tend to direct quite a few episodes of the shows I produce, uh, which is great. But at the same time, I do get burned out on a show. Uh, I produced the, well, I directed the first season of Weeds and then was brought in season two to be one of the, uh, to be the producer director. And, and on that show, especially I directed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and I did three more seasons. And by the end of the fourth season, I just felt like I didn't have anything else to give as a director. Right. I directed, I think 22 of 26? the 40 episodes I was there mm-hmm. for. And, and mm-hmm. I just felt like the actors needed fresh blood. I just, it felt like as hard as it was to leave, because I loved doing that show and it was a real career changer for me. And mm-hmm. and it was an incredible opportunity to work with Jenji Cohan and Mary Louise Parker and we had a great crew. And um, it was a hard decision for me to leave, but I felt like to grow, yeah. I needed to move on to something else. And, you know, the show ran another five years. I could have easily- It's hard. St- it's hard to leave. And, it's... and, you know, been there, but I don't think I've always made creative choices um, to keep me from getting bored. And so it's paid off yeah. um, in terms of getting to do a lot of different kinds of shows. But, you know, there are there are a lot of hard choices to get made going down that road in order to, to kind of keep myself fresh and, and work on all sorts of different kinds of shows. Do you like producing? Like if, if, do. You, if you're hired yeah. just as the producer, are you like, damn. <laughs> <I> haven't, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I haven't been hired as just a producer in a long time. I've always been hired as a producer director. Um, yeah. I don't think I could just, produced i think that would be too hard for me because i would miss yeah. directing but i could so much yeah uh, but i have over the last couple of shows that i've produced directed less and i've enjoyed that as well as long as i get a couple episodes in um and most of the stuff recently has been um cable or streaming so there are only you know eight ten episodes so to direct two is is plenty yeah. but i do when I'm producing, by the time I'm done with a season, I'm ready to go back to freelancing and, and just kind of come in as a guest and not have to worry about all the Cheers, minutia of producing <laughs> a series and everybody taking care of people and, you know, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of stress that goes along with producing a show that isn't there when I'm just guest directing. Although oh, yeah. I do approach all of my guest directing as kind of a, a junior producer on the show, hopefully to the delight of the people that are there, Always. because I do have that background so I can help, you know, well, if we have a budget problem or we've got a cast problem, whatever those issues are, I've seen them before as a producer. And I think that's super so. valuable. That's got to be a huge plus for any producer that's hiring you, like to see like, oh, he's worked on this, he's done this. He's like, if we can, we can talk to him. He's not going to go bonkers on this like he knows the deal that's it's got to be a huge relief for like you know and just having you as a guest director yeah i i hope so sometimes i also know too much and i can also because <laughs> i've always felt like 
is normally as it happens in your department and every department and the whole show, it's always comes down to having to cut something or change something because you're over budget. That's the way shows are written. And that's what yeah. we learn to expect and, and writers do a good job of helping out. But at some point you're like, I can't change the script anymore. We're this num number over where are we going to get the money? And I, I've always asked, the line producers of shows to not make cuts without letting me know because often an area that gets cut is let's cut extras so we're gonna cut yeah. you know we've got however many extras for this episode and we're just gonna cut extras because that's money we don't need but to me i i say just let me know when you're gonna do that because what i might say is you know what i'd rather have those x number of extras and i'll cut two crane days i don't need a crane i'd rather have the extras right. than the crane but you know hopefully you know that that's helpful for people but i'm always just trying to as we all are put it up on the screen and make it look good and and tell the best story possible and sometimes you need those extras to tell the best story and you don't need the crane well there's not i mean especially with covid i i do feel like i notice like, oh, there's not a lot of people in the background on this. This must they must have filmed this during like early COVID. Yeah. Like you <laughs> I, did, uh, yeah. I feel like it's kinda noticeable in some things. Or like people are standing really far apart. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, no, it's, then <laughs> it's weird. I mean I hope people don't notice. I did a an episode uh very early in COVID and the whole thing took place on the Staten Island Ferry. And, you know, there's supposed to be a lot of people on the ferry. and Of, um, and, of American Rust or Wu-Tang? Uh, no, this was on Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang. And uh, the whole episode, there's not a scene that takes place off of the Staten Island Ferry. It's oh about God. the journey from Staten Island to Manhattan and then back from Manhattan to Staten Island. And it's a really fun episode. And we shot it like a Western. It's done like a spaghetti Western. Oh, my God. But, you know, one of the things we talked about early on was, look, we're going to be on a boat in the middle of New York Harbor for nine days. We only got off at lunch. So we get on in the morning. Were you moving the whole time? You're we moving the whole time. I'm out. Whole... I get to see, yeah. I get to yeah. right now just like hearing about this. Yeah. I'm out. <laughs> uh, yeah. We had a couple of windy days. But, uh, but yeah, so we were on the boat and then we'd come back for lunch and everybody get off the boat. We'd have lunch, then get back on the boat and wow. go back out into the harbor and be out there for another six hours, then come back or whenever we were losing light. And we talked a lot about the extras because we wanted it to feel full, but obviously especially early in covid it wasn't possible we were yeah. inside the ferry not just outside but i will give our ad's so much credit that i think we had 30 people 35 people maybe because the whole crew's on the boat as well right you gotta so count already, them like those covid people are like you can only have crew members yeah everybody <laughs> they're yeah, on they're on you February, with like <laughs> how much square footage there yeah. is and how many people can be in the space oh, yeah. and it's very limiting exactly. they don't seem to care yeah. when we're prepping anymore but like when the shooting crew is <laughs> there yeah they used to yeah. care about us when we're prepping but not anymore <laughs> it's fine yeah. which not i'm glad even. about get out of my get out of my world yeah. <laughs> but yeah but yeah so it's but it is a challenge. I mean, it's just added a whole no another layer of a challenge to what we do. And did that affect your shoot? Like, okay, well, we're going to do it. We're going to figure out a way to do it. What are we not going to shoot on this boat? Are we not right. going to do the episode that's so beautifully written? And it's 
we'll so just figure it out and we'll jam a bunch of people into this corner for we're looking this way and we had everybody wearing jackets because it was cold and then we turn around and look the other way and say okay you people with the jackets on take your jackets off you people with the jackets off put your jackets on movie magic <laughs> turn around don't face us and we made it look i mean it never looked like it was jam-packed which wouldn't have worked for our story anyway because we wanted some open spaces for this western feel but you know maybe now that people have heard this and they go watch the episode they might notice that there aren't extras there but you know i, th I thought that the ad's did a great job of making 30 or 35 people feel like you know we had a, a nice full ship and and on that show you're producing and directing right how did you get involved uh, in the wu-tang <laughs> are you yeah wu -Tang? Kind of wild right uh, are, you wu -Tang? are you a tanger wu -Tang <laughs> specialist um i was living in new york at the time and um the the show had been picked up and was getting ready to start and they were about a week away from shooting the first episode and uh, i got a call from uh my agent saying are you interested in the show they're looking for a producer director i think they realized um, that they needed somebody that could be in new york full time um, the creators of the show are the rizza from wu-tang mm -hmm. and uh alex z uh, this was the uh, 25th anniversary of 36 Chambers, mm -hmm. and uh, Rizzo was heading on a world tour about three episodes into the show. And Alex lives in Los Angeles and has a family here, and the writers are here, and editing was here, so he was leaving. And I think they realized, uh oh, we need somebody there who knows what they're doing and can kind of run the show for us in New York while we're all over the world in the case of Rizza. And uh, I met with uh, Alex and Rizza through Zoom and much like this, and we uh, hit it off and- Did you wear I, like yeah. big chain? Like, did you like, <laughs> <laughs> I was, did you really like was, try to get it? Like, <laughs> I know, no, I was really excited. I mean, I know their music. I'm yeah. not, I, at the time I was not a gigantic fan. Now I know everything about them and, and, and I'm a huge fan of the music and the individual <laughs> albums. and. It just was a good match, you know, again, you know, it's kind of a very unlikely place that I would think I would have landed trying to tell this story. That's awesome. And, uh, and I was kind of thrown into it and I spent as much time as I could with Riza and Alex, uh, for the, for the month or so that they were there before they started going all over the place. So there was some wardrobe thing came up on the show and, uh, so I had to get a hold of Riza because I knew it's something that he would want to be in on the decision making. And I called his assistant. I think they were in, on tour in Germany at the time. And so I call his assistant Slice and I'm like, Slice, I got a question for Riza about wardrobe. I'm sending you a picture. He's all right, boss, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get him. And so he gets, you know, get talks to him and texts me back. And, and then like five minutes later, Slice sends me a video of Rizzo like walking out on stage <laughs> in front of this gigantic stadium tour that they were doing. And that's the kind of guy that Rizzo is. Wow. You know, he's always available and would do anything. But, you know, I kind of got the sense of what they wanted and the feel for the show. And it was, you know, we were creating the feel of the show at that point. And, and it was great. 
I yeah. loved doing it. I moved back to Los Angeles in between seasons, so I wasn't able to produce the second season or the upcoming third season, but I directed um, a couple episodes in, in season two, and Alex and Riza and I are still That's awesome. close and talk, and yeah, they're, they're really, they're mad geniuses. I love working <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I don't know how you contain it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know how you contain that energy enough to make the series like to have them concentrate on the series aspect of it (laughs) i know yeah i mean it's it's a trick i mean it's a talent i mean look we're telling riz's life story and it's and it obviously means a lot to him and and it's such a compelling story that you know you read the scripts and you kind of know what to do because it's just such great drama Um, but again, from my experience on Brooklyn bridge, knowing how important the details are, right. That was probably my bigger concerns were, you know, I'd be shown wardrobe or props or set dressing and we were doing Riz's house that he grew up in. And sure. I could pick the couch and I could pick the drapes and I could, I could create in my mind what his house might have looked like, but I would be saddened if he saw that yeah. down the road and was like, eh, it's fine, but that's not what our couch looked like. So I always want to go with the authentic and go to the source. And he was the source. I remember we were shooting um, uh, the exterior of of his character's house in Staten Island. We shot the show in Staten Island. We shot in the neighborhoods that oh, that's he was in it. And so we're standing in front of the house and I, and I said, Oh, so Riza, is this house anything like the house you grew up in? Just trying to get that authenticity of like, is this, I figures I knew kind of where his house was. So I knew we were in the right area. He goes, Oh no, that's actually the house I grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> so he said the insides changed. So we had built this inside on stage, but the exterior, he said, Oh, this is the house I grew up in. Oh. So we contacted the people who lived there and, Oh my God, that's fantastic. Yeah, so we we really were in the real locations, but there were always stories like that when I'd hang out on set with him and be like, well, did that really happen? He goes, oh yeah, it happened. It was much worse than that. (laughs) (laughs) So all the things you don't think actually happened, happened, and some of the other stuff was made up, but uh, it was great. I I learned so much, as always. I mean, that was only, you know, two years ago and doing this a long time and... I mean, I've never worked on a show without learning a lot of new stuff. So, and that one probably more than any in in recent history. I don't know. Do they, but you're, they're showing performances, right? Because it's, does, does it go into when they start performing? It does. Season two, season one is is um, everything pre them becoming Wu-Tang and Riza having his solo career, which which failed um, due to him not being authentic to himself, which is a good lesson for everybody. And uh, season two, uh, I directed the boat episode, which uh, the spaghetti Western on the boat was episode four, which was the Riza character, Bobby, uh, getting everybody together. The whole idea of the episode is he's going to get all the main guys on the boat they're warring they're two separate projects who are fighting with each other all the time but not 
I mean, they're shooting at each other. They're trying to kill each other. And that's all real life stuff. And Riz's house is literally in between the two warring projects. So he was the middleman from, from day one. And so he's gotten everybody, all the main players on the boat who are not talking to each other, literally are shooting at each other, want to kill each other. And he's saying, look, we're not getting off this boat until we come to terms with each other and we're a group. And that's the beginning of the launch of Wu-Tang. And then the episodes that follow that, you actually see them start to record together and be a group and go on tour. So that's kind of the second half of season two. See that? I told you. Super nice guy. Great stories. And I learned about directing from this. I gotta be honest. I... uh, it's hard. It's hard to be a, uh, you know, visiting director coming into a set and um, everyone knows each other and you're trying to make your mark on a set, but not really because you can't change things or you can. And yeah, I have all, all respect for, uh, you know, like directors coming in on episodic. It's hard. It's hard. And he's very light on set. He's very approachable and he has like really good fun ideas. So I'm always super happy to see his name (laughs) when I'm working. So yeah. Um, And so part two of uh, the interview I'll have next week. And again, he just, um, he goes into working on musicals and more of cop rock and Gary, Gary, the Larry Sanders show and um, the looming tower and a very surprising answer to uh, what show or movie do you wish you directed. You gotta, you gotta stay to the end on that one, but totally worth it in hearing his answer. That's all I gotta say. I hope you got an earful. I'm Kim Monup for Decorating Pages. You still haven't gotten your holiday gift? Float on over to stogiefloaty.com and pick up a stogie floaty. Available now on Etsy and stogiefloaty.com. <laughs> <laughs>